This is Listen to the Editors, a series of interviews with journal editors to unveil the trends in research for operations and supply chain management. I'm your host, Yuri Gavronsky. Today, I'm interviewing Gopesh Anand and John Gray, who are the department editors for the Journal of Operations Management. Good morning. Morning. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. We are on a different type of episode today. Instead of interviewing editors-in-chief, we are interviewing department editors. I would like to ask you, what does a department editor do for the Journal of Operations Management? Um, I can go first. This is Gopesh. Uh, so uh, what happens is when uh, somebody submits a paper, uh, the editors-in-chief, um, they look at it. Uh, when people submit their papers, they usually submit to a department. Uh, but the editors-in-chief have the final say in terms of uh, which department editor they will um, assign it to. So they take a look at it and then they uh, do some initial uh, going through with the paper and then they send it to uh, one of the department editors. So either John or I uh, get it if it's suitable for the strategy and organization department. And uh, then we take a first look at it and then if it's... Uh, um, uh, suitable for sending to uh, reviewers, uh, we proceed with that. So that's how it works. Before we start talking about your work as department editors, could you please present yourself to our listeners? Sure, I'll go, I'll go ahead. This is John uh, Gray. Um, so I, um, I do a lot of research in the areas of kind of outsourcing and offshoring, uh, overarching interest in kind of hidden costs and risks and challenges in uh, managing outsourced and offshore operations and uh, maintaining performance over time. Really heavy focus in, in kind of FDA um, pharmaceutical industry um, and currently actually working on, on two different grants, uh, trying to understand uh, quality risk in global supply chains. Uh, I, I'll go next, this is Gopesh. So um, my work is uh, focused on organizational learning. Uh, I focus on process improvement, continuous improvement programs. Um, uh, so I've worked on uh, Six Sigma, Lean kinds of continuous improvement programs. Uh, more recently, uh, John and I have been working uh, jointly on uh, compliance types of projects. So taking more of the quality control kind of angle um, and looking at it from the perspective of compliance and how that impacts different things in terms of performance metrics of organizations. What's the name of your department at the Journal of Operations Management? So it's, uh, it's strategy and organization uh, is uh, what our department is called. What would be your focus when the editors-in-chief get a paper? How they decide the paper goes to your department? Um, I can take a stab at it and perhaps John will uh, correct me on, on some of these things or, or add to it. Um, uh, so uh, our department is... is is not a context-specific department. Uh, so some of the departments are more context-specific. So if you think of uh, healthcare, for example, or, or if you think of uh, um, uh, supply chain management, those are more context-specific departments. Uh, ours is more focused on uh, having a, a theoretical perspective uh, behind the research. So we're looking at papers that uh, come at those questions uh, from uh, using um, theories from business strategy, corporate strategy, and theories from, uh, uh, from organizational management, organization learning. Uh, that's the way we look at it. Obviously, there's some overlap uh, when we talk about context. So we do get papers that are more related to supply chain management, healthcare, and so on and so forth. Um, and, and obviously, you can make a case for sending those papers to one or the other department. Um, so I think the way it works is the first cut is, is when the the, uh, when the uh, authors uh, submit to a certain department and then the, uh, the editors-in-chief make the final decision uh, whether that is suitable for that department or they can even override and send it to another department. John? Yeah, I'll just add, we wrote a, a, an article published in 2017, just a short article in JOM that describes in, in detail uh, what we think the domain of strategy and organization operations management is. Um, you know, it's really kind of classic operations strategy, but um, it's expanded um, about how firms compete with their operations and then also kind of org theory, org design uh, with the internal operations. Those are the two domains because of some of my research is actually probably more supply chain. I do get some supply chain papers as well. The editors kind of 
have some discretion as to where they where they send the papers to. Just a quick comment about that. We have an area in the podcast that are the show notes. So you can link to these articles or whatever you were mentioning. I think that would be very helpful for prospective authors. So before we, we move on to more process-oriented questions, let me ask you something about the content. I mean, you were mentioning, John, earlier about the operation strategy. And operation strategy was a field that was boom, booming, maybe, or blooming in the 90s. And then we saw less and less papers talking about operation strategy per se. And then that happens maybe with all subject fields, right? In the beginning, you had papers on maybe sustainability. And now the, the subject grew so much that now you have a more specific approach. So how do you see the area moving? I mean, this, this, the topic of operations strategy, how, how would you evaluate that over time? John, you want to take this? Yeah, that's, yeah I can try. That's a, that's a tough one. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's moving away, I would say, from, from kind of correlating um, like success in operations with success in the firm or correlating specific um, you know, good practices, you know, high levels of, of good practices or high levels of realized capabilities with high levels of operational performance, um, which I think was a lot of the defining work, uh, which was very good and very necessary at the time uh, to define what kind of a good operation looked like. I think it's moving a little bit away from that um, and a little more, um, yeah, a little, a little more, it's hard to describe again, I'm trying to refer you to our 2017 paper again, but a little more towards, um, a little more, a little more nuance. Um, uh, you know, under certain conditions, which practices, uh, which 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 characteristics of operations are most effective? Probably that's probably the the, the simplest way to say it is. We really need to. Uh, it's no longer okay to just say that you know having this capability or implementing this program always works. Um, it's under what conditions do do these things work? And the things include things now like like um, more emerging technologies and considerations of more performance dimensions, including um, you know, confidentiality and, and, and things that maybe we didn't look, spend as much time on before. Yeah, to add to what John just said, that's absolutely right. We're, we're looking more and more at uh, nuanced ways of looking at strategy, but um, we're also looking at beyond just operation strategy and uh, trying to bring in, um, Yuri, you mentioned sustainability as, as one of the examples you were using. So how does that relate to what we're doing in operations? Uh, there seem to be a lot more um, cross-functional kind of things as to how you would relate operations to to what is happening in organizational behavior, uh, whether uh, taking care of employees has an impact uh, on how your operations are functioning, uh, those types of things. Um, so we see more and more of that happening. So it's moving away from uh, simply saying that you do well at operations and uh, your performance will improve. Uh, it's getting more and more at beyond operations, what else can be done? Um, and to add to, to, to another, add another angle to that, I think what is also happening is that uh, we're, we're unpeeling the onion a little bit more, if I can say that, and, and talking about uh, what exactly uh, does it mean uh, when we're saying that uh, there is going to be a lot more focus on a particular uh, strategy, like a cost strategy or a, uh, a innovation strategy. What does that mean in terms of uh, um, the uh, the steps that companies have to take in order to pursue that strategy? We can maybe summarize as saying that you are looking more towards a contingency approach or trying to understand under which circumstances uh, things happen and then uh, getting a more um, nuanced or detailed explanation. Would that be fair, a fair assessment? Yes, I think so, yeah. Another thing that I find uh, intriguing, well, I was trained in the survey world. And back then, we were concerned with reliability and validity of constructs and, and refining more and more the constructs to be more and more reliable and valid. And I see now a trend towards archival data. And archival data, while it's it's very interesting in terms of the amount of data you can get and the opportunity to make longitudinal studies. I find that sometimes we struggle finding 
reliable or valid measures and uh, also measures that are related strictly to operations. I mean, we have from the strategy field lots of connections between some indexes and then how these indexes are related to some strategy measurement or some strategy construct, if you will. But we find it harder and harder to get to the point where we had back in the survey date when we had, for example, plant level data, and now we are looking at firm level data. How do you evaluate the use of archival data for strategy and operations? Okay, so I, I actually have a paper that's on SSRN um, on secondary data for measuring performance and operations management. We put quite a lot of thought and revisions into that paper. Um, and so, um, and I've done a lot of work in with secondary data. Most of my work has been secondary data, so I, so I feel like I can talk about that. Um, so the reliability and validity measures that I was also trained in at, at uh, UNC um, by Jeff Edwards, for, who's a well-known OB um, methodologist and, and, and researcher, um, are, are, are important and useful. Um, although you can get high numbers um, with things that kind of hold together, even if they're not measuring the same constructs. So I think there were some examples would be like a, a, a lump together measure of performance that includes cost, quality, delivery, flexibility. Um, they may all lump together. Uh, maybe partially because of common methods, maybe partially because the plant's just a good plant, um, but may not, maybe they're not really a valid uh, measure of, of a single construct. That might be an example. So, but on the flip side, the secondary data um, and coming kind of from the economics approach has kind of, you know, in, in some ways thrown these kind of uh, careful attention, especially to measures of reliability and validity, a little bit out the window. Um, and instead replaced it with um, just arguments that this is a valid measure. Um, and, and that can have its own problems, although in some cases, um, I think some of the secondary measures are, are pretty good measures. Um, I mean, you talked about strategy using um, measures. They often use like CompuStat type measures. Um, and, and these, and, and finance and accounting use those all the time as well. And, and you're right, those are kind of hard to bring down to, to operations. Um, and so I think it's it's kind of on researchers who want to use secondary data to find uh, sources of data that really match what they're trying to to research, and, and that's not always easy. And I will say, I'm rambling a little bit now, but the um, combining secondary data and survey data, I think, is a really, really, really great way to solve a lot of problems because there are things you cannot measure with secondary data, right? You can't measure well. We're actually trying uh, with the FDA work, but it's really hard to measure, you know, kind of plant culture, um, plant practices, um, a lot of things that we care about with secondary data. So you can maybe go survey those and then maybe uh, if you can find some creative secondary measure of performance or something, that's a really nice study uh, combining those two. So I think both methods have, have problems. Um, and uh, there's, there's really good survey papers and there's really good secondary data papers. And, and of course, there's ones that aren't as good with both as well. So I hope that sort of answers your question. I'll let Kopesh add. Yeah, um, I think John summarized it pretty well. I would add a couple of things to that. Uh, one is that uh, uh, I was also trained in survey data, so I understand that and I'm also using secondary data now. So I'm uh, also uh, dabbling in both the fields. Both have advantages and disadvantages, as John pointed out. Um, the the it, it, It's a uh, just an observation in terms of what we see in terms of acceptance in the field. And, and uh, I don't necessarily agree with that, but uh, it seems like if, if somebody wants to do their own survey, uh, it's looked at more skeptically uh, than if, they, if there's data that they're collecting from somebody else's survey, but that's more large scale, uh, that's treated as sort of like secondary data. So there are, uh, there are data that end up being about surveys of sustainability uh, and that are more large scale, and that is treated more like secondary data. Uh, and because of the larger uh, sample size, we don't tend to question those reliabilities and things like that uh, as much as we do if, if a researcher says we did our own survey. Um, that's, uh, like I said, I don't necessarily agree with that, but, uh, but that's the way um, the field seems to be going. We, we, we like uh, larger sample sizes. Uh, what would be ideal? Um, in terms of uh, an ideal to aspire to uh, is uh, is having some type of mixed methods. John mentioned survey and secondary. Uh, 
and if, if we could have papers where um, or research projects where we're combining a, a smaller subsample where it's a detailed case study of what are the mechanisms um, that relate the independent variables to the dependent variables. Like, because what happens with secondary data is there's so much space between what we are talking about in terms of the independent variable and the dependent variable that it's very difficult to make the arguments. It takes a lot for the authors to make the argument to ask readers to make that leap of faith of um, that that something Im is impacting something else, and and that's where the a detailed case study of a few of those cases uh, would be very beneficial. So that would be the ideal situation, and I recognize that that becomes challenging because of uh, time and, and length of paper and so on. So. Let me just add a, a, a point that Kapesh made. It, it is on the authors, um, you know, if you use secondary data, oftentimes that data was in essence a survey um, of somebody. It could even be like even the census data in some ways is a survey. Um, so it, it's um, it's wrong to um, say one method or the other is, is, is bad at its face. I mean, they both have their place. They both have, uh, they both can do things that the others can't do. Another huge benefit of secondary data is often you can get longitudinal data, which for a lot of the things we're interested in is, is really important, so. So you mentioned two different empirical approaches, um, either archival data and, and survey or, or, or detailed case studies. Uh, what about mixing empirical analysis and analytical, for example, with this let me bring that out, uh, up. Unfortunately, it's, it's all over the news. But with this uh, corona, new coronavirus outbreak, for example, um, we, we feel sometimes compelled to make extrapolations <laughs> using the data, saying, "Okay, we and we know that the human brain is not very good with exponential uh, data, right? We we tend to think linearly." In what sense do you think that we could combine empirical approaches and analytical approaches to solve problems such as those? I think it would be great. It's really, really hard to do. Um, I tried to do that in my dissertation, actually, and uh, turned out the analytic model just um, wasn't rich enough and the data I could collect didn't match it enough. I mean, it's really hard to attack the same problem with analytical and empirical. Now, COVID-19, I think there's some simulations um, that could go along with the data collection. That's kind of a real-time thing, not 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 what we typically do uh, for academic research. Um, you know, it, uh, but um, but I think analytic. We would love. Um, I would love at least. I can just speak for myself. A paper that has an analytic model that motivates empirical research that validates something in the analytical model, or vice versa. But it's just really really hard to do. I don't know. That I've seen many single papers that have done both well. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with what John is saying. It's very difficult to do. You're almost, uh, uh, it's almost like you are um, exposing the limitations of your, your own data if you are trying to do both in one paper. So with the empirical, you're going to see a lot more uh, uh, in-depth of uh, what should be the reason that uh, uh, some things are, are happening. And then uh, you're not going to be able to model all of those in the analytical uh, because of limitations of um, that type of analysis. So what's going to happen is that you will be making almost arguments uh, against your own paper by using both the methods. So it, it, it seems very, it, 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 you would like to bring in both of those perspectives, uh, but it, it seems on the face of it, it would seem like you would be adding richness, but then you end up um, adding more uh, doubts about your own uh, paper and that. What I would like to see if I can uh, suggest something uh, and that I don't see too many papers doing is a combination of, uh, of experiments and, and, uh, and using uh, data that has been collected from uh, people in management, right? So uh, that is something that I think um, our field is, is um, uh, should see more of. I, I think it can be done more. Uh, I am not just talking about uh, things like uh, uh, the bullwhip effect and, and inventory, but more also in terms of 
uh, continuous improvement, more also in terms of compliance and what can be done in terms of uh, uh, simulating those environments uh, in behavioral experiments um, and, and seeing what, uh, uh, what we can glean from those types of analysis. Uh, so I think that I just uh, feel like if I had unlimited time, that's what I would be training myself to do and, and actually trying to do that along with uh, gathering secondary data. So let me clarify this point. We would have two ways to do that. One, or to understand what you were saying. For example, one would be we can go into the route of uh, experiments such as behavior operations do, like understanding the behavior of managers and, and things like that. But we do have also experiments from industrial engineering where we can have, for example, a line or a production line with, with a particular policy and, and another production line with a different policy and, and those different lines would be either control and treatment but again that would be much costlier and harder to convince a manager to do i mean what what route do you suggest so i'm, I'm suggesting the latter route but i'm not suggesting it in the way that that you're describing it i mean that that would also be a valid way of doing things but that would not that would not fit our department right i mean that we're talking about uh, strategy and organization and and uh, so there I'm talking more with the, the uh, um, what would what you would have easier access to in terms of being able to use um, professional students in terms of being able to use uh, uh, even to the extent possible undergraduate students but there it becomes a little more difficult so if you have issues such as are employees engaged and, and what difference does it make if employees are engaged or not in compliance. Uh, that's something that we may be able to capture if uh, we can design an experiment to do that. Uh, and that can be done, uh, not necessarily by trying it out on the plant floor. I mean, that again would be ideal if we would have uh, two different plants and you're, you're trying two different types of incentives there. But uh, even if we could simulate that, um, um, although there would, there would be some limitations of doing it in, in that type of simulated environment, uh, if we could simulate that in more of a student environment, uh, at least the, the data collection would be easier. Yeah, let me just say what you referred to is kind of like a field experiment where you would get, get the, someone to agree to uh, allow you to kind of implement a treat, treatment and control out in the field. And um, <clears throat> if you can do that, if you can get a big company to agree to, to implement certain things in a random set of uh, teams and, and not implement another set of teams, that's, that's incredibly exciting. And, and, and that would be, I think if there's some organization, uh, some in the organization domain where that would be, be relevant. Very, also very, very hard to do. I don't know that I've seen even a submission in my department yet attempt to do that. Although I've seen that in kind of healthcare operations uh, quite a bit and, and, um, I've seen some people do it in uh, the big IT. I think Brad Stats did one in, in an IT uh, organization in India. Um, if you can get an, an organization to agree to a field experiment, by all means, that's a great uh, opportunity. Would these um, difficulties that you are re referring to in terms of mixing different methods or mixing empirical and, and analytical methods, do they have to do with our training? I mean, I was trained with barely no analytical methods and, and mostly empirical methods, and, and it was a lot of work to learn. Um, can we train PhD students in operations and supply chain management that are proficient in both, or should they talk to each other more? I mean, the empirical strand and the analytical strand, what would be the solution for overcoming those limitations that we're facing now? So at UNC, they did actually train us in both. Um, that was a little, it was a little more on your own for the empirical because UNC had a pretty, pretty historical kind of analytical approach. And at Ohio State, we do more empirical and then we're a little lighter on the analytical, although we do require students to have linear programming from the IE department and some other things, so some, some analytical. I think it's possible to give the students a taste of both. Um, the, the danger is then they're not excelling in either. Um, but either way, I think just, uh, you know, mutual respect between the two groups to, to the extent there are two groups and understanding that all research has strengths and weaknesses and, and, and we can learn from each other. 
uh, what I was referring to with the analytical and empirical combining into one, it, it wasn't so much a lack of training. It was just, well, it could, it could have been that I wasn't creative enough. It's just really hard to create a solvable analytical model that has, that you're able to match the empirical constructs to your analytical um, variables. Um, that's what I found at least, and I haven't seen too many successful ventures in that. But it, it, it is, and it, it, you're gonna have to train yourself on some things. Um, after PhD, we all know that, right? You get you get some baseline training, and then and then wherever you go, you're gonna have to do some learning on your own. So, um, you know, it, it, I think it's good for the PhD programs to give a, at least a a taste of both, um, if not, uh, you know, getting people up to a point where they can feel comfortable attempting something in both. Yes, and and uh, to add to that, I was trained at Ohio State, and as John mentioned, where he is right now, so that I got trained more, mainly in empirical methods and and less so in analytical um although i mean it's it's uh, empirical has also changed as as yuri was pointing out uh, i mean you got trained uh, and i got trained in survey methods and now it's more secondary data so there is a lot more uh, of what i would call the analytical flavor that is entering the empirical world it's not just simply taking the data and running the analysis there's a lot more uh, that uh, is being done with empirical data um, and, and uh, it's 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 unfortunate that we use the term analytical for the more stylized math models uh, when empirical is also in some ways analytical um, so so that's a long way of saying that I don't think it would be uh, prudent for us to think about getting students um, experts in both areas. I think that would be difficult. Uh, both fields have developed so much that uh, it's harder and harder. Uh, they have to do more. Um, and, and if you think about success rates of doctoral programs and placement, you have to have students that are coming out with at least one published paper, maybe more. Uh, that becomes harder and harder if you're trying to accomplish all of that in a doctoral program. So I would say more, as John was saying, get a flavor of the other side. There will always be schools that are concentrating more on one type or the other type of research and, and make sure that at least they read papers and the other type of, of analysis and, and get themselves educated about it. Um, and then uh, once you are, once you've graduated and, and you're able to um, work with uh, co-authors uh, that are coming from the other side. I think that helps um, to uh, to combine these things. So the papers that would have these combinations would be based on combining the competencies of multiple people. And, and I'll just take an opportunity to to get up on the soapbox. Um, you're the, the you made the point about. Uh, PhD students having to have publications when they come out and, and these days it seems and I agree that does seem to be the tendency but I think we need to make sure that PhD students are really doing their own research and really really um, taking the time to understand the literature and what they're doing and, and a lot of these papers that we see in the students that are coming out are from RA assignments or faculty-led and um, and I think it almost hurts us that we feel like we have to get them a publication versus getting a really um, deep knowledge in in a domain they're really excited about and in a really good job market paper but maybe isn't published yet this is kind of off the topic but <laughs> i just saw an opportunity to possibly have some people listen to my little rant so i'll stop there i i'll just say that i agree with the rant so i just don't want to go um that that would be a completely different uh maybe we need a separate podcast for that I'm good with the rant. In fact, I learn a lot with those interviews from the responses and from the diversions as well. So I have to say that they are very welcome. So let me ask the process question. I want to know what happens after the editor-in-chief assigns the paper. I mean, I don't recall the submission form for a paper for JOM, but um, probably they choose the department. What happens with prospective authors when they start the process? They, they hit the submit button already saying I, I would like to submit to the strategy and organization department? I think they have, they have a cover letter. I don't think they actually submit to a department specifically, they, but they can put in the cover letter that um, they want, a, they feel like it's the best fit for a certain uh, editor or for a certain department. Um, and then the EICs decide, they don't have to listen to that. Um, and they basically send it to us and then it's up to us to decide whether or not to send it out. And then we, we pick two reviewers and an AE usually, sometimes three reviewers. Um, send them all at the same time. The reviewers have five weeks. Um, 
The IE then has another few weeks after that. And then we have a few weeks after that, if all, so if all goes well, you know, within 12 weeks, the, the, the feedback is given. Obviously there's sometimes some slip ups in finding reviewers or getting reviews on time. Um, but uh, that's, that's basically the process. So if I understood correctly, the prospective authors have two opportunities to be desk rejected. They can be desk rejected by the editor, one of the editors in chief, and then by one of the department editors. Right. Um, what are the grounds for desk rejection at your level? So if it got to us, it, 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 the EICs wanted us to take a look for a reason. So um, yeah, the desk rejects at our level are actually, at least at my level, I don't know about Kopesh, but they're relatively rare. Usually if they send it to me, I'll send it out um, because they sent it to me for a reason. And they will usually take a, a, a thorough read and, a, and an actual review by me as opposed to kind of a template desk reject. So the, the, the few I've done um, have been like, okay, just, I just don't see a way that this is going to um, get to be a, a fit for JOM and at the level we need one or the other. Sometimes it's just a fit issue. Um, so it's it's a desk reject from from me at least would be a, a review by me with my name on it obviously uh, whereas a lot of the desk rejects I think from the ICs have a kind of more of a template reply because uh, the, they sent it to us because the paper had some potential they thought yeah I agree uh, with I mean that that is the process as John described it uh, throughout so so there's no you're not forced into a department when you submit uh, you don't there's no form for that but you usually uh, people will put it or authors will put it in their cover letter um, they don't have to right so they can just send it and then uh, the, the EICs can decide which department they're going to send it to uh, so they they could choose to send it to our department or to some other department um, the one thing that I would add uh, to what John was pointing it, uh, to is there's uh, sometimes a, another step that the um, EICs take, which is they send it to a uh, methods DE. Uh, so they have uh, method experts uh, that will look at it even before it gets to us. So if they feel like uh, there's, there's a question there in terms of the methods, uh, they also look at uh, similarities with uh, other papers or uh, so they do that sort of check also. There's a lot of similarity with something uh, that uh, usually it's the same authors that have published um, some other paper. And, and uh, so they, they might send it back to the authors and say that this is too similar. So those would be two reasons that the EICs, other than fit with the department, they might be a methods issue or a very similar to another paper that you've already published kind of issue that they might send it back and then they send it to us. And as John pointed out, once it gets to, to me or, or John, um, I, the, um, I, I usually will send it out to uh, reviewers uh, and an AE, so two or three reviewers and an AE. About the associate editors, are they a pool from associate editors that are Bruno-wide or they are assigned to a particular department? So it's it's a it's a pool. It's they're not assigned. They're not uh, um, uh, wedded to a particular uh, department. So we can choose to uh, send it to any of the A's that are uh, in the system, and we can even uh, uh, elevate somebody to an A status uh, from being a reviewer status uh, if if that's somebody that we feel has has sent us a lot of good reviews and and. Uh, should be able to take on the responsibility of being an AE. So uh, is that accurate, John? Yes, yeah, there was an, an um, we, um, there was a process a few years ago where we nominated, each department editor nominated AEs. So in, in some way they're sort of affiliated with departments in that way, but there's no, when you, when we search for AEs, there's no department affiliation in the system. So we're just, we're just trying to find someone who matches the paper well. How do you know the load of the associate editor? Do you have in the system the, the load of this guy? I mean, is there a possibility that a particular AE has 10 papers under his belt? No, the system tells us um, how many they currently have, how many in the last 12 months, and when their last review was done. So, and we're, we're the guideline is to try to keep them to, I think, under four, about four a year. So if we see somebody who's been a little overloaded, we'll, if they're really a good fit, send a note, can you please do this? Or just go go on to somebody else. Yeah, and that's the same for reviewers also. So we see uh, there's visibility in terms of what they're currently doing and what they've done over the past year, and, and also complete history in terms of what they've done. And uh, 
so we we can uh, we can make sure that we're not overloading a particular a or even a reviewer in that way. What are you doing after the paper has been assigned? So um, uh, as John mentioned, the way GM is a little bit different in terms of we assign the a and the reviewers at the same time. So once we get the paper, we uh, select reviewers. We also assign an AE uh, with the sense that the AE can work in parallel. They can read the paper and wait for the reviewers' reports uh, to write their final report, but they can also form their own opinions before that. And they, and they keep getting the reviewer reports as and when they come in. So if there are two, they'll get the first one when it comes in and then the second one. Then they can write the report. Um, in the meanwhile, I mean, we've already taken a first look before sending it out. Um, then after it, it, it comes back, uh, we uh, um, take a look at, uh, at the reports, uh, if, uh, if there's convergence uh, of uh, the review reports and the AE, um, we, uh, we, we validate that, we verify that by reading the paper. Um, I'm saying we, I hope I'm, I'm saying the same uh, for John. But, uh, uh, so that, that's what I do. Is, is I, if, if, if there's convergence, I still validate what is being said in terms of uh, my read of the paper uh, and, and a closer read of it. Uh, if there is um, a, a, a wide divergence of views, then, uh, then obviously there's uh, more of a role uh, for the uh, department editor in terms of going in and seeing uh, where uh, the discrepancies are and what uh, I might think about uh, uh, going one way or the other. And then that's how we, that's how I would make my decision. John? Yeah, I agree. Um, but uh, uh, unlike I think some journals, the department editor, at least at least I usually end up writing a, a report as well. Um, sometimes, unfortunately, for the author's a lengthy report, although I hope it's helpful, it tries to be helpful. <clears throat> um, so you end, the authors end up getting two to three reviewer reports plus an AE report plus a DE report to respond to, um, which is which is a lot. Um, but yeah, I agree. I, I don't uh, believe I've overturned. Um, much uh, from the AEs, and if I have overturned, typically it would be a reject that I would I would want to give the authors a chance. And I will also say that the EICs have never uh, overturned my decision yet. Um, so I've I've done seventy, I've handled seventy papers, and so far I haven't had a single one that the EICs uh, changed my recommendation. So, how do you manage the day-to-day -day operations? Um, what do you look? in terms of indicators or what do you see to make the your department runs runs move i think it's mainly um uh keeping in touch with the uh reviewers i think that that becomes uh, uh the main uh, process task in terms of managing the pipeline uh and uh transparency in terms of if they're getting delayed uh, if if when can we expect it and things like that Right, so, so yeah, that that's the that's the main uh, thing that uh, that I end up uh, doing in terms of the process perspective. I think our reviewers and the AEs uh, um, mostly do a, a very good job in in giving good constructive thorough reviews. Uh, they will even come back and say, "I can comment on this aspect, but I cannot comment on this aspect because I'm not an expert." So, uh, so that usually. Um, the, the quality of the reviews doesn't end up being an issue, at least for, for me, for my department. I think it's mainly the timeliness. Uh, there's a little bit of, of randomness in terms of when a reviewer would, would send something in and when an A can jump on it, when I can jump on it, and, and those types of things. We try to manage a 90-day turnaround um, from submission to getting a response back to the authors. Uh, so we are aware of that. We we, uh, uh, we we try to keep in touch with, uh, or at least I try to keep in touch with the AE and the reviewers in terms of uh, where they are in terms of the workload and when can they get things back to me and so on and so forth. Yeah, so I just keep a running list of what, what reports I need to do, what papers I need to send out. If I don't have the time to do it, the instant I get the email, I, I note it, note the due date. And Try to get my part done, and then this is the new system's pretty good about automatically reminding the AEs and, and reviewers uh, when their things are due, and so they're usually prompted to 
reply to those automated emails and say, hey, I might need another week. Is that okay? Or maybe, you know, and uh, usually it is, as long as we're not already behind. In terms of share of papers, would you have an idea how many papers do you get from the total of papers? No, actually. Although I guess I, I, I think they got 600 or 700 papers last year, and I probably handled 30 or so, and that's or 20 or 30. I've been about 30 a year, I think, since I've been doing this, 25 to 30 a year, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's a couple of months. Um, and, but they're, the, the EICs are just rejecting a, a non-trivial percentage as well. Um, and uh, so I, I, don't, I actually don't know. I think our department was one of the higher submissions, but there's two of us. Um, so I think we're probably about getting about the average load, was my sense from our last DE meeting. Is that about right, Kapesh? That, uh, yeah. That sounds right. I, I don't know the exact numbers, uh, but I, that sounds right. About uh, two, two and a half per month is, is uh, what I'm handling as a DE. Uh, and uh, yeah, I don't know the exact numbers in terms of percentage of the whole uh, uh, journal. About practical implications of our work, that's a concern all around the globe. And I assume it's also something that you probably think about on, on Journal of Operations Management. We have this trade-off that I don't know exactly how to cope with in terms of speed and reliability of our research that we have to cope with. Um, for example, now we're saying about this outbreak of this new coronavirus disease, we would never be able to have something published on time that would be useful for decision makers or practitioners, either in private firms or at public level. How do we manage that tension or this trade-off between speed and reliability within the journal? I guess my <clears throat> my first answer would be that we're, you know we're doing we're publishing the journal Academic Research, which which is at least um, hopefully kind of dealing with theories that last and logic that lasts and 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 findings that that will will inform future research and teaching and and. Uh, and practice. Um, and so to, to rush that through um, for an academic publication, I think is probably not where JOM is going to play. I mean, that we're, but I think authors who feel like they know something about what's going on are free to um, try to publish white papers or submit something to this. There's something called the conversation. There's you have blogs, you have opportunities to put something out quickly, even if just a LinkedIn posting, if nothing else. Um, on, a, on a thing. I actually have an article with the Society for Equitable Growth on what the coronavirus showed about the fragility of our supply chains. Um, I don't think it's gotten all that much traction, but it was, it was an opportunity to put something out quickly that just is a thought piece on, on what we've learned. So I think we have it, we as authors who are doing research that we think is relevant have the opportunity to, to get into the conversation. But I don't know that an academic journal like JOM um, you know, the papers that are published are, are building a, a, a body of knowledge that can inform these things. But I don't know that we're going to rush papers through on the coronavirus in time to, to inform policy. And I don't think that's, that's really our place or our goal. Yeah, I would, I would agree with uh, what John is saying entirely. Probably have nothing to add to that. We covered a lot of ground here. I would like to hear from you if you have anything to add. John, you want to get on your soapbox? Uh, no, I'll just say, um, you know, that, that um, yeah, we, we really do um, want to publish papers, even though it may not always seem like that. Um, and, and we really um, encourage submissions of, uh, of work. Um, we really encourage authors to really think through kind of the logic and whether the claims they're making in their paper are warranted by the by the data and the, and the methods and, and, and do as much and write the paper as well as they can. Um, Cause we really do. I know Gopesh, I, I feel I don't enjoy rejecting papers in any way, shape or form. Um, uh, especially if it's a later revision or something like that. I mean, I'll, I'll, uh, you know, um, really, really try um, to bring, you know, try the best I can. Um, but so I, I guess I just want to encourage authors to, to, to keep submitting and, and, and try to listen to the feedback of the review teams. And, and we really do appreciate all the hard work. We're authors too. We get our papers rejected uh, too. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we, we, we want to encourage everybody to, to, to keep moving on and know that at least I know that I can speak for GoPage on this as well. We are, um, 
we are we want to publish papers we are trying to do everything as ethically and fairly as possible um and uh but you know we we, we have to hold the standard of the journal yeah i agree and if i can uh, put uh, a little bit of my uh, giving advice hat uh, to authors it's one of the things that is important is uh um, I, I always think of it as two extremes. There are some papers that um, um, are really well written and, and uh, uh, there's a lot of work that has been gone into the analysis um, and the, 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 the deficient part, if there's anything, is that the, the story for the audience is not there. I mean, it's, it's, it's a so what question. So that's one extreme and on the other extreme, um, I would encourage authors to to uh, to take their time with the paper before they send it in and and think about every paragraph that they're writing uh, and and every citation that they're putting in and not be a little um, not be uh, not have lack of rigor in that sense either in terms of their writing um, uh, to be careful about those things because reviewers and A's do care about. How the paper looks and how the paper sounds and how the paper reads through and and whether the citations were done consistently or not consistently that just shows the level of care that the author has put into the paper. So I think that's important in terms of uh, uh, submitting uh, their papers to this or any journal. I would say. You know, uh, if we're going to give advice, I'll add one more thing. That is, um, if you have related work that that draws from the same data, even if it's just a working paper that's in process at another journal. Um, and certainly if it's published, um, I encourage you to try to cite it and separate your paper actually in the paper. Um, you, you may not, you, you can probably do that in a way that maintains a double blind review process. Uh, you can just say, um, if you can't do it in a way that maintains a double blind review process and you really don't want to cite it yet, you need to put it in the cover letter. Because um, we've had lots of situations, I've had more than, um, than, more than I would have expected uh, where, I or the AE or one of the reviewers points out that, hey, there's a paper that was just published in, in Palm that uses the same data, has the same constructs, same measures, maybe even names them differently, you know, does, does something it, it, and, and it just doesn't go over well if, if the authors haven't revealed that at some point in the process, ideally in the paper, so that they have clearly separated the contribution of this paper with the prior paper, or at least in the cover letter, uh, so, that, so the editors know that there's these other papers floating around. So that, that's one piece of advice. I'd say 15 times out of the 70 papers I've handled, that's that's happened. Someone's found a, a really closely related paper that wasn't revealed in the review process. But then if, if someone points that out in the cover letter, doesn't get to the reviewers by the point, by the time, say, for example, I have an author that submitted to either POM and JOM related papers, not exactly the same, but they are drawing from uh, the same data set and then they point out in the cover letter and POM by some reason publishes that paper. Uh, is there any way that the author can communicate that to the editorial board somehow besides the cover letter? Would you encourage that update? Um, you can always through the system send an email to the editors um, anytime. And if it's in the system, it's all recorded, it's all transparent. Um, so that can be done. Um, I would argue that you probably should have in the cover, first cover letter, it just indicated that paper existed even before it got accepted. Um, again, the reviewers aren't gonna know about it if you only put it in the cover letter. Uh, so it does put, um, the editor kind of has to decide, okay, now that I've been pointed to this other paper, is the contribution enough? And that should be stated, again, ideally in your paper, if not in your, in your cover letter. You know, I will say, I always point out that the you know, entire fields like use CompuStat for there's thousands of papers with CompuStat. So drawing from the same data to write a new paper is not in and of itself any sort of problem. Um, but if it's a, a if if it's a very similar paper uh, taking a slightly different angle, the, the unique contribution needs to be stated. Um, and and if it's hidden entirely. Uh, seemingly with the hopes that no one would find out, then that, that's a problem, right? If it's, if it's at least written in the cover letter, we know the, the, the authors were, were wanted to be transparent about it, but they couldn't figure out a way to cite it without revealing who they were. If that's the case, then there are no two papers, right? I mean, 
if you have same data, you have the same ideas, you have pretty much the same results, it's pretty much a double submission. Why would you send to... No, I'm talking about when there's when the, the papers are fairly different, but they're maybe using some of the same variables. So it's it, it might be a paper with a model with seven or eight variables, and maybe they're using the same... Uh, two or three control variables are the same, and maybe what was a research variable in the first paper is now a control variable, something like that. Where it, it it's um, but the question's different enough. Yeah, it, if they're two of the same papers, that's a clear ethical issue, right? If they're doing the same thing, um, maybe I'm not being clear. Maybe Gopesh can help me because I'm sure I see the same thing. But yeah, there are there are uh, papers that draw from the same data that share some variables that go after different questions, and that's okay. Um, just need to be transparent about that. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I think it can be simply stated as you should definitely put those things in the cover letter and in when you're informing the journal that there are other papers that are related. Um, and then the editor uh, can take a look at those papers and, and make that decision off that similarity part, whether um, whether it's, it's uh, Different enough for them. So, so um, although it's it's blinded from the reviewers, uh, it is not blinded from the EIC and the DE. So they can look at those papers and make that determination if they feel that there is enough for it to be sent out. Uh, so once you've done that, I think it's on the um, you you've you've been transparent with the EIC and the DE in terms of what else they are working on from that paper. So if so, if it's on if it's on the borderline, if if it's a gray area then it can help the uh, uh, the EIC and the DE to make that decision. And, and they may even look at it and, and send it back to the authors, not so much a desk reject, but, hey, you know, I looked at that paper and I feel that you need to articulate the contribution above and beyond that paper in your paper. Um, and so I ask you to revise the paper in that way as opposed to just in the cover letter. Um, so things like that can happen. But if you're not transparent, we send it all the way through the review process and someone discovers um, a paper that really should have been noted um, that 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 then I consider a problem. So you are highlighting basically the role of the cover letter that is highly overlooked, stating conflicts of interest. For example, if you have a colleague that had a friendly review of that particular paper early in the past, you should disclose that before you assign that particular colleague to as as a reviewer or something like that. Yeah, I think you should cover cover any ethical potential ethical issues with the paper in the in the cover letter. And that way, if something comes up um, that the reviewers feel uncomfortable with, first thing I always do when a reviewer raises something is go back and look at the cover letter and see if it see if it already acknowledged that. Anything else would you like to add? No, this was great. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to say something to authors and reviewers and AEs out there. Thank you. I thank you very much for the opportunity. And thank you to anyone still listening. Um, <laughs> that means you listen to the whole thing. So. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> Thanks, Yuri. Appreciate the opportunity to do this. Thank you. Thanks, Yuri. Thank you.